Lord Jesus, as we come before you now, as we remember you, as we open up your word, I pray that you would reveal yourself. Open yourself to us, that we would see you, that we would know you, that we would love you with all of our hearts, minds, and soul. Lord Jesus, bless us right now as we listen. We pray this all in your name. Amen. You may be seated, church. Good afternoon. And just want to wish everyone Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. There you go. That's kind of our response, I guess, to Merry Christmas. Um, you know, Christmas was almost 2,000 years ago, right? But almost 2,000 years before Christmas, we had another event happen. If we can, if you could see right there, that is Abraham staring up at the night sky as God spoke to him a promise. In Genesis 22, verse 18, God told him that in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. If we can go to the next slide, video team. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. This is very interesting because not only did God promise to Abraham that his offspring would be blessed, they themselves would be blessed, but that they would be a blessing to others, and not just to some others, but to all nations. That's a huge promise if you really think about it, right? It's not that they're going to just prosper. It's not that you are just going to prosper, but you will be a blessing to everybody else, to every single other nation. That's a global promise. Now, going from Abraham and the promise that God gave him, fast forward that to Christmas, the first Christmas, 1 AD, almost 2,000 years later, if we look at the nation of Israel, who are the offspring of Abraham, we don't really see God's promise being fulfilled. In fact, not only were they not a blessing at that time to others, they weren't even a blessing to their own selves. This is wild. Just, just follow me for a second. At that time, Israel was being ruled by a foreign government, Rome. And Rome did not have Israel's best interests in mind. Rome was actually not a bad government. It was fairly tolerant. But it did not have, you know, the image and the view that God promised to Abraham about Israel, right? No, they're just another kingdom that was just another source of money, right? But so not only were they not ruling, but they were being ruled, but it gets even worse. Look at what happens during Christmas. When God finally sends his son to his people, to Israel, we read that Herod, the king of the Jews, goes and when he hears about God's son coming into the world, he actually goes and tries to kill Jesus. In fact, Herod is not content to just try to kill Jesus himself. Herod is fine wiping out all boy, infant boys in, a whole, in an entire region of Israel just to try to kill Jesus. 
That's a very bloody, bloody scene. We're going to be in Matthew 1 today. But think about this irony. Israel's own king, not some other king, killing the offspring of Abraham. The ones about whom God said they will be a blessing to all the nations. Israel is now busy cannibalizing its own self internally. And we read that Mary and Joseph, they actually had to flee to Egypt to escape from Herod. What Matthew is doing here is he is creating a parallel. He's creating a parallel with Pharaoh of the Old Testament. Remember the story of Pharaoh when Israel was living in slavery? What did Pharaoh command when Israel is becoming too powerful? He said, take all the infant boys that are born, all the baby boys, and throw them out so that they would die. And here we see during the time of Jesus, Herod, the evil king, doing the same exact thing. He's killing the Israel's baby boys. The exact same problem that God saved Israel from over a thousand years before that is the same exact problem that Israel is now doing to its own self. The irony is so thick here. In fact, it's so bad in Israel that the Son of God has to flee not from Egypt, but to Egypt. It's crazy, right? It's, it's like it's blowing your mind. Like, what? Like, if you were to tell one of the Israelites that just left to tell Moses, hey, one day the Son of God, whom he, God will send, will have to actually flee to Egypt. You're like, what is going on? What's, what's going on with Israel? And again, we see in Matthew 2 that to Jesus came the Magi. These were likely pagans. They were not Jews, right? And they came to worship Jesus while God's own people are trying to kill Jesus. Instead of Abraham's offspring being a blessing to all nations, it's being a curse to its own self. They're busy killing one another. And the question is, how did they get here? Like, how, where's the disconnect? Well, we have to take a brief look at the history of Israel in order to understand how they got there and, and you know, what, 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 did, what did their journey look like and why were they not the blessing to all the nations like God had promised them? Where did they go wrong? If we can go to the next slide. They started off as a very small nation. There was just Abraham. He had one son, according to the promise, Isaac. And then Isaac just had two kids, and one of them, Jacob. This is Jacob and his 12 sons. They were a tiny, tiny little nation, just small. Like at that point, you, all of you can die in, in, in any day, right? Uh, a, a band of raiders just comes and just, just wipes you out. They escape to Egypt, to escape the famine, if we can go to the next slide. And once they settle into Egypt, Israel finally starts to prosper. Israel starts to multiply greatly and very quickly. Very quickly, they become very wealthy and very powerful. And it seems like at that moment, as, as the Israelites, they're watching themselves prosper, and they know the promise that God gave to their forefather, to Abraham, they're thinking, okay, God's about to fulfill his promise. Soon we will become a blessing to all nations, right? 
but unexpectedly, a new Pharaoh arises who did not remember Joseph and the good things Joseph did to Egypt. And what he does is he enslaves all of them. He takes all of their wealth and uses them to serve his own purposes. And he begins to kill their baby boys. And so begins this long period, painful period of slavery in Egypt. But after hundreds of years, God hears the outcry of his people and he sends Moses to save them from Egypt. If we can go to the next slide. And we all know the story. Moses comes, through him God sends the ten plagues upon Egypt and miraculously frees them from slavery, right? And he leads them out of Egypt. And as he leads them out of Egypt, God gives them something he's never given any nation ever. He gives them the law. God's own words literally written on stone tablets. He gives them the law to protect them, to guide them, to lead them, so that they can prosper and be the blessing to all nations. And not just the law, he also gives them an entire priesthood that would help them follow the law, live by the law, be protected by the law. And not just the priesthood, but he also leads them into the promised land. The promised land is described in the Bible as the land flowing with milk and honey, meaning it is a land of abundance, meaning all of them would be really wealthy and well-off, and they would have everything they would need in order to reign and to rule over the whole world. And it seemed like now, finally, now that they're big enough, now that they have their own land And it's a land of milk and honey that they will now take up and rule. They had everything. The law, the land, the priests. But we see that that's not how the story ends, right? They start being oppressed by the different nations that are around them, right? The Moabites, the Amalekites, the Ammonites, the Canaanites, and many other nations start to oppress them. And again, kind of enslave them and use them because they were not keeping God's law. We read that. And so the priests, they weren't able to protect God's people. So God sends judges by his grace, to the people of Israel. And the judges are these military warriors who would would save Israel from their strong enemies, miraculously. But the whole book of Judges, what's the one phrase that constantly keeps repeating in the book of Judges? And they kept doing what was right in their own eyes, right? And it is a buildup. The book of Judges is just a buildup to the next stage of Israel, the king. In fact, the very last verse, if you've ever paid attention, in the book of Judges, Judges 21, 25, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What Israel was missing at that time was not just a powerful judge that would arise during a crisis and save them. What they were missing was an even stronger leader, a leader that would always be ruling and reigning, not just during war, but always. He would always have a standing army, and he would almost be preventing problems instead of just dealing with the problems that arise. 
This is exactly what the king did. He would be a strong and central leader, and they would all unite around this king to enforce justice, to protect Israel. And truly then, they would prosper under his rule. And they did. They did prosper. They prospered under Saul. And then they especially prospered under David, defeating their enemies. If you read about David, how many enemies they conquered, how much land they expanded. He prepared the preparations for building the temple of God, ready to be a blessing to all nations. And then comes in Solomon, the greatest king of Israel. In fact, Solomon was, it says, a man of peace. His name, Solomon, comes from the Greek word shalom, which means peace. And his empire became even greater and bigger. In fact, it was at its peak, and he was a man of wisdom. They were the superpower. They were the wealthiest, the most powerful nation at that time. And it seemed as if they were about to reach this promise that God had given them, that in your offspring, all nations shall be blessed, that they were going to begin ruling over the nations with justice, maintaining world peace. That's the blessing, right? But we read that only after the third king of Israel, only after the third king, the nation splits. Civil war. They divide in half. They be, the people of God begin to kill one another. It's like, imagine you're climbing up to Mount Everest, right? And you're about to come to the peak, and, you're, and you grab hold of the peak, but it's slippery, and you slip off, and you just come tumbling down the mountain all the way down to base camp, right? That was the nation of Israel thinking that they were about to reach it. But God did not give up on his inheritance. God sends prophets to them in order to turn the heart of kings back to God, in order to turn all of them back to God to fulfill that promise. God sends Israel many prophets, and it seemed to help. But ultimately, we see that Israel was never restored to its former glory. They never attain that peak. Eventually, the northern kingdom, one half of the nation of Israel, is actually conquered by another government. And they're taken away into exile, and they were wiped out, essentially. They intermixed with the people, and they were gone. Ten tribes, just like that. The southern kingdom remained for a bit more, where Jerusalem was the capital, where the temple was located, until it was finally conquered by Babylonians captured and taken into exile. And all that remained in the inheritance of God, this, this nation that was supposed to be a blessing to all people, all that was left was just some poor people in the land, just to work the land. Another kingdom subservient to another superpower. And at this point, for many, the hopes of attaining the promises that God had given Abraham were all shattered. 
Just think about how you would feel as an Israelite in that moment. When you see the kingdom destroyed, the temple of God destroyed, people being slaughtered in front of your eyes, you're taken away naked into captivity, and you are thinking, God, where are you? You promised us that we would be a blessing to all nations. And right now, we are just the scum of the earth. Israel kept failing. No matter how much they tried, no matter what or whom God sent to them, the promised land, the priests, the law, the judges, the kings, the prophets, they kept failing. It seemed like God's promise to Abraham would not come true. You see, there's this great saying that says, understanding the problem is half of the solution. Have you heard that saying before? Understanding the problem? I don't know why that G is down there. <laughs> understanding the problem. Well, that's a problem. And I understand why, the, why we have that problem. Um, <laughs> I got to convert from Google Slides <laughs> to PowerPoint. So, but when we understand the problem we can create a good solution, right? But when you don't understand the problem, we can't create a good solution. It won't work. A great example of this in history is the communist revolution in Russia. My great-grandparents, so my grandma's parents, they were Christians and they were peasants. They had farmland, they had animals, they were hardworking, and you know, they had their own big house that they built, and they used it as actually a church and a gathering place, and they worshiped God there. They earned an honest living. But when the communists had taken over Russia, they considered people like my great-grandparents as the problem right? And so they came over and they decided to fix the problem. And you know how they fixed the problem? By dispossessing them of all that they owned. They came to their house, they took their entire family, both the, the parents and 12 children, and they, they pulled them out of their house and they set them into the snow, and they said, do whatever you want to do. And then they went and they found the poorest person in their little village who also happened to be the drunk, right? The, the lazy person living there. And they took them and they said, look, we're giving you equality. And they put them into their big house. Right? We've solved the problem. These, this family, it was oppressing everyone. And now we have equalized it. And everything is great. Right? It's crazy. In fact, the communists didn't do this to just my great-grandparents. They did this to millions and millions of people, to the peasants. They killed millions of peasants, the hard-working farmers. They exiled millions more, just like that. They were fixing oppression. They were fixing inequality. Just for you to understand the effects of what the communists did to the farmers in Russia. In 1913, Russia was supplying the world with about half of its wheat supply. Half. 
By 1948, when the communists had fixed the, by then they had fixed the problem, Russia was no longer, the USSR was no longer exporting wheat. They were importing a third of their wheat, and most of that wheat was actually from the United States, ironically. Right? So they, they, they completely destroyed the peasant class. They discouraged people from working. And on this topic, I recently watched this fascinating documentary about why the USSR collapsed. And obviously, it's not a simple answer, and there's many different factors. But it talks about how the reason why the USSR was able to continue existing as a nation, despite all the mistakes it had made, is because it started pumping oil. In 1960s, the Soviet Union discovered massive reserves of oil in Russia. And so they began to pump, and they began to pump at extreme speeds. They were essentially printing money at that point, just like the Fed today is printing U.S. dollars, but we're doing it out of thin air. Well, they were printing money, but using oil. And what they would do is they'd pump the oil, they'd sell it, and they'd use that money to buy food, and they'd import it into the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union couldn't even feed its own self at that point. Now, what happened was, in 1985, CIA Director William Casey travels from Washington, D.C. to Saudi Arabia, and he agrees with Saudi Arabia to say, hey, Saudis, start pumping five times the amount of oil that you currently pump. It's going to hurt you, but don't worry, we'll take care of you. So Saudi Arabia increases its production of oil by five times, and what that does in the world economy is it crashes the oil prices. That's very bad news for the USSR, because oil was one of its main sources of income. And, what, and the USSR was already in debt, and this, the crashing of the oil prices, was the nail in its coffin. Why did the USSR fail, and why did America continue flourishing? Because the USSR tried to promote an idea of communism, that no one should profit, that people should just go and work for the common good. Instead of a market-driven economy, they had a top-down, government-driven economy, and we can all see that it just did not work because the USSR no longer exists. You see, communism fundamentally, at its core, misunderstood the problem of human nature. Human nature. Communism sounds great in theory, does it not? A classless society where we're all perfectly equal, right? We're all just one. Wow, that sounds great, right? No private property, right? It's just everything is shared. Everything you need, you can have, right? You just work however much you can, whatever way you can, and whatever needs you have, those are being met. Ah, that sounds awesome. That's utopian, right? All is shared. There's no greed. There's no profits. Just everybody seeking everybody else's good. Sign me up. I want to be first on that list. But you see, here's the problem. Human nature, in our fallen human nature, we do not, selfishly, we do not seek the common good of others. 
We seek our own good, right? And I'm not saying capitalism is the answer, by no means. But capitalism, when you compare it to communism, it is better at fundamentally understanding the problem of human nature. And remember, misunderstanding the problem gives us a bad solution. It's a long example, and I'm connecting it back to Israel. You see, the entire time, Israel had misunderstood its problem. At the time of the first Christmas, they were all waiting for a Messiah, for a powerful military king who would take up arms and who would topple the Roman government and they would begin to rule from Jerusalem and then from Jerusalem they would capture the rest of the world with an iron fist and they would rule and reign and they would be a blessing to all nations. But they misunderstood the problem. All they had to do was look back to its own history and ask, well, how will defeating the Romans with the military, how will that be any different than Saul, David, Solomon? How will it be any different? They didn't want to ask that question. They had judges, and they failed them. The great kings failed them. The priests and the prophets, they failed them. But church, I assure you that God's promise did not fail them. Galatians 3.16 says, Now the promises, if we can go to the next slide. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. You see, that prophecy that promise that God had given to Abraham almost 2,000 years before the first Christmas was actually about Jesus Christ, about a person. You see, Jesus is the true Israel. He is the true Son of God, the true offspring of Abraham. In fact, that is why Matthew goes at great lengths to create these parallels between Jesus and Israel. We read that Israel's boys were persecuted by Pharaoh, an evil king. Jesus was persecuted by Herod, an evil king. Out of Egypt, God calls Israel, and we read that eventually Jesus is also called out of Egypt. We read that Israel, they went through the Red Sea, and the New Testament says that they were baptized, right? Symbolically baptized in the Red Sea. Jesus was baptized. What happened to Israel as soon as they walked through the Red Sea? Where did they show up, church? The desert, the wilderness, right? Where did Jesus go immediately after he was baptized? the wilderness. And they were tempted in the wilderness and they failed. Whereas Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, but he did not fail. He overcame. Jesus is the true and the greater Israel. God's promise to Abraham did not fail. He fulfilled it through Jesus. Specifically, in Matthew 1.21. This is our Christmas passage of today. 
This is the angel speaking a prophecy to Joseph, and he says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Church, Israel's biggest problem was not not enough power, money, prosperity, education, technology, or even God-fearing leaders in the government. That was not their biggest problem. Their biggest problem was sin. And that is the biggest problem of all people, of all humanity. Our greatest problem is sin of every nation. Matthew 1.21, she'll bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. Notice, it doesn't say that he will save them from Roman oppression, he will save them from poverty, he will save them from the lack of education and ignorance, or even from the sins of other people, but from their own sins. Their own sins. I'm sure that was a shock. Church, you realize that the greatest problem that I have, that you have, is our own personal sin. My sin, Peter Kondrashoff's sin. Not liberal politicians and corporations, not social media, not the internet, but my own sin. That's my biggest problem. There is, I have no problem in my life that compares to the problem of my own sin. There is no other problem that even comes close. Not even the most horrible boss, not even the worst enemy compares to the problem of my own sin. There's no circumstance, no person, no bad luck. Nothing compares to the size of the problem of my own personal sin. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. You see, sin is horrible in at least two ways. The first one is it it destroys life here on earth. We understand that it is through sin this whole world was cursed and corrupted. Every form of negativity that we experience here on earth is because of sin, directly because of sin. There's not a single negative thing that you can think of that is not a direct result of sin. Whether it be physical pain, emotional pain and the brokenness of our relationships, mental pain and suffering, all of it is directly of sin. But more than that, more than just making us miserable here on earth, sin, the second way is it destroys Not just the life here, but the life to come. This is the the most horrible way that sin is horrible. Because sin cuts us off from our creator. It hides his face. Because he is holy. He is pure. He is upright. And he cannot look upon evil He is the source of all that is good. He is the source of eternal life, and sin hides his face. Sin isolates us from him, self-isolates. Like Adam, after he had bitten of the forbidden fruit, he went and hid from God. 
and all of us hide from the source of life because of our sin. So often, we tell ourselves, and I want, I want you to think about like how, how is it in your life? What do you apply it to in your life? But we think, if only I had X, right? Whatever it is. If only, and I know we don't think in such broad terms, but we think like, ah, just, I really want this thing, whatever it is experience or person or whatever, and if only I had that, then, then everything would be good. If only I got to that other green hill over there, right? If only I was married or had kids or, or a nice house or a job or a good career or financial freedom, retirement or, or a fun life. If only I got to travel or if only other people liked me or I had friends, then everything would be good, or mostly good. Then everything would be in its place. But these hopes and these dreams in that moment is us misunderstanding our greatest problem, which is sin. I'm not saying it's wrong to have goals. I'm not saying it's wrong to reach those things. We, we, we should have goals, we should pursue goals for the glory of God. Should try to improve things. But we have to realize that is not it. It's not going to be our end all be all. Because our end all be all is caused by our personal sin. And this world offers us a million various solutions to the problem. But they will always fall short. And someone might say, but Peter, our crime rate is dropping. It's been dropping. Look at the statistics. I agree. So is our national happiness. And our mental health crisis is only getting worse and worse and worse. So did we really, really solve our greatest problem? Jesus will save his people from their sins. Church. Friends, in Jesus, on Christmas Day, God sends the only solution to our greatest problem. Only Jesus can help us with this biggest problem. Not education, not technology, not power, not wealth, not government or the lack of government, not even our own selves. We need a Savior who is from God and he did help us. All these other things, church, that we are so tempted to trust in, they're all false. They will not solve the greatest problem. They will only set us up for failure. Only God can ultimately be faithful with his promise. Jesus is the perfect son of God the perfect Israel of God who will fulfill God's promise perfectly and save us from our sin. Jesus is the true blessing that God told Abraham about when God gave Abraham that promise. Right? That's the blessing. The blessing is that God, through Abraham, would offer salvation 
would offer eternal life to all nations. That's the biggest blessing, right? That's the true blessing. That's why Psalm 32 verse 1 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. That's the real blessing. The forgiveness that we find in Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm sure that, Abraham, that Matthew was thinking about this because you know what? Matthew, when he wrote his genealogy, that's the, you know, who's the dad of who leading up to Jesus, he doesn't start from Adam like Luke did. He starts from who? You guessed it, Abraham. He starts with Abraham and he goes down to Jesus. And, and it's, it's this word, all nations, oh, I think I remember an echo of that in Matthew. Where does, where does Matthew talk about all nations? At the very end of Matthew. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Go therefore, right? To all nations. To all nations and bring that blessing of Christ to all the blessing of forgiveness. Friend, if you have not yet experienced the forgiveness of Jesus, come to him. If you have not yet received the blessing of Abraham in Jesus, come to him. If you are caught in your sin and you can't find your way out and you keep thinking, oh, I just need to try this other thing or this other thing, and you just, you're trapped, choked up by sin. You can't breathe because of your sin. Come to Jesus. Not to a book, not to a religion, but to the person of Jesus Christ. He's here. He's always near to you, and he is ready to save you, to free you from your sins. Like the angel prophesied, he saves us from our sins. Bring your sin to him, and he will free you from it. How does Jesus save us from sin? First of all, he gives us forgiveness. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Jesus restores our relationship with God by offering us forgiveness. And now, we have peace with God. Complete, perfect peace. The peace that Jesus gives there's no angst in it. There's no underlying tension. There's no anxiety. There's real peace. And that peace is real. And if you haven't experienced it yet, come to him. Taste of that peace that Jesus offers. It's real. It's true. The infinite debt that we could never repay. We feel that anxiety because we feel like we still owe that debt. It's gone. He has paid it all. Even if the whole world hates me, it doesn't matter. Because I now have peace with the only one that matters. With the only one that lives forever. The only one through whom I will live forever. I have peace with him all glory to God. 
There's no more second thoughts. Does God really love me? Yes, he does. Because Christ has paid the price. Ephesians 1, 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. I no longer need to live in fear, but in the exciting expectation that one day, one day, and that day is more sure than tomorrow, I will see God face to face, the most beautiful one. And when I will see him, he will not be frowning at me, but his face will be excited to see me. And he will welcome me with open arms and take me into his glory to be able to enjoy him forever. I love what Jonathan Edwards said. He said, to go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here on earth. Better than fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of any or all earthly friends. These are but shadows. But God is the substance. These are but scattered beams. But God is the sun. These are but streams. But God is the fountain. These are but drops. But God is the ocean. This is what awaits all who have trusted in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And the second, the last way, Jesus gives us transformation. That forgiveness is more than enough, but it doesn't stop there. The blessings of Christ don't end with just eternal life. He transforms us here and now, today, in this world, 2023. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Jesus actually transforms our heart from the inside out. And by faith in Christ, we are no longer slaves to our old sinful nature. That's why Paul says in Romans 7.24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. As I call the band up, I want to say that through Christ, we find the only and true transformation of our souls. That's the only way. All the other solutions is a fundamental misunderstanding of our underlying issue. It's like, imagine your car won't start, so you decide to take it and repaint it, right? I'm glad you've repainted it, but you've got an engine problem. You need to open the hood up, and you need to fix the depths of the car before painting it, right? Everything else is paint. It looks great. Oh, wow, right? It, it looks amazing. Your car might look like garbage before, and now it looks amazing. But wait until you actually try to start it. That's when you'll realize that the problem didn't actually go anywhere. Yes, it felt good for a little bit, right? All these solutions, communism, felt good for the first couple of decades. 
in Russia, right? Oh, it's working. Wow, it's so awesome. The revolution is the new way. We're going to lead the, the world into freedom and light and equality until they try to start the car. Psychological tips and tricks. They feel like they're working. Drugs, alcohol, they can feel like they're working, that they're doing something. Success can make us feel like we've solved our biggest problem, like life is good now. But only Christ can produce that lasting, true transformation of the soul. Only he is perfect, church. And only by being conformed to his image can our souls be changed. So Christmas is the celebration of our Jesus and his name literally means the Lord saves or the Lord is salvation. He is the one who has come into this world and we celebrate that he is saving us from my own sin, from my biggest problem. Everything else, promised land, priests, judges, kings, prophets, none of them could help Israel. So on Christmas, God himself descends into this world and lives among us. And that's why Matthew quotes Isaiah and he says, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what, church? We've got Emmanuel on the back screen. God with us. It's not just a priest. It's not just a king or a judge, a prophet. It is God himself that came and walked with us and died for us. God is faithful. And God has fulfilled his promise to Abraham. And you can be a partaker in the blessing of that promise today. Christ, friends, we are free. John 8, 36 says, so if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. So come to him, be set free. Come to him, find forgiveness. Come to him and be utterly transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. We'll have a minute of response time, and I'll pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you like the shepherds, like the magi, and we fall before you. We worship you, our great king. Thank you for taking up the Father's mission to save us from our sins, to save me from my sin. The one thing that is actually stopping me from being with you, thank you. I pray for any who don't know you yet, may they find forgiveness in you. And I pray for everyone who has come to know you that we would be further transformed in you looking at you, becoming more and more conformed to your image, Jesus. Please bless us, Lord. Bless us Christmas. May the joy of your arrival fill our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.